If you could even call it living, life in Gaza has been nothing but harrowing for a month now. Fighting between Hamas and the Israeli army has intensified, to say the least. Israel says the war now has entered its second phase as the military has Gaza surrounded. But civilians, ordinary people, are still paying the highest cost of this war. More than 8,500 people have been killed in Gaza, including more than 3,600 children since October 7. They're not just numbers on a screen. That's 3,600 children with names, kids who have had favorite colors, favorite toys, their yummiest food, and the unique first word that their parents will remember forever, if they were still alive. Each one of them, dead. And on that day, Hamas carried out an attack on Israel, which was described as the biggest and deadliest attack in 50 years. More than 1,400 people were killed there. People in Gaza are facing non-stop bombardment. People who have lived through war after war in 2009, 2012 and 2021 are saying this is the worst they've ever seen. Hospitals in Gaza are grappling with an unimaginable crisis. Entire facilities are gone out of service. Hospital corridors once accommodating the sick, the injured, the displaced and their loved ones have gone pitch black. This is Beyond the Headlines and I'm your host Nadal Tahir. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at the hospital's conditions in Gaza by speaking to one of the doctors there. We are also delving into how Gaza has reached this point and what is expected moving forward as the war enters its so-called second phase. Medical workers in Gaza are living in chaos and despair. The war has left the healthcare system in tatters, pushing workers and patients to their limits. Here's the situation on the ground told by Nibal Farsakh from the Palestinian Red Crescent, which is leading the paramedic operation there. The medical situation in Gaza is simply dire, catastrophic. All hospitals now are uh, collapsing due to extreme shortage of medical supplies and medicine. For example, very basic uh, medical supplies is missing, uh, such as painkiller. Adding to that, that all hospitals are running out of fuel, which is urgently needed to continue operating the hospitals because they are um, depending on backup generators to have electricity. At some point, when the electricity will be completely cut, that means hospitals will shut down. So now over 2 million Palestinian civilians are with no food, no water, no medicine, no fuel, nothing, and soon they will be without medical services. Hospitals are overwhelmed. They are working more than full capacity. uh, People are getting treated, injured people are getting treated uh, at the ground on hospitals' corridors. They have to wait uh, so long until they can get the chance to be uh, treated. On top of that, hospitals are... Uh, as I said, overrun because they are receiving hundreds of casualties every single hour. That comes with extreme shortage of medicine and medical supplies and running out of fuel. Up to this moment, humanitarian aid is getting into Gaza is very slow. We call on a non-stop safe entry of the humanitarian aid, including, uh, including fuel. We turn to Dr. Ghassan Abu Sitta, who is currently in Gaza as he describes the situation in Al-Shifa Hospital. So there are around 50,000 people who've sought refuge in, in uh, the compound of, of Shifa Hospital. Shifa Hospital 
is made out of multiple buildings with kind of a compound uh, around it. And it's turned into a, a kind of, sh- you know, a shanty town. Um, cardboard, uh, tarpaulin tents, uh, people on mattresses on the floor. And this is helped by the unseasonably uh, warm weather. And these um, internally displaced are even in the corridors and in the stairwells of the hospital. You add to that that there's probably now four times the number of wounded that there that there are originally beds in Shifa. And so the wounded are on mattresses, on the floors, trolleys, everywhere you can imagine. And the numbers keep increasing. The ambulances never stop and the numbers keep increasing. While doctors and people in Gaza face this difficult moment in history, on the edge, not knowing what to expect, The fighting between Israel and Hamas has not relented. Gaza is Hamas's political and military base, and Israel is prepared for a long military struggle against the group, expected to last from, quote, four to six months, according to Israeli officials. Four weeks into the war, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is still adamant in ruling out international calls for a ceasefire and wiping out Hamas. To understand how this all became and what Hamas is capable of, I sat down with Ghaith Al-Omari, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, whose research focuses on Arab-Israeli relations. He was also previously a political advisor to the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. Ghaith, did this whole thing begin on October 7, or is there some sort of backstory that we need to know? I know it's not easy to summarize a 75-year-old conflict, but we believe in you. So who is Hamas and how did we get here? Hamas is an organization that was created in 1987. So it's a new, fairly newcomer to the Palestinian issue. Islamists have always existed in the Palestinian society, like every other Arab society, yet they have remained out of the liberation struggle for the longest time. They decided to create Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine, created Hamas in 1987. From the very beginning, Hamas has been against any kind of compromise with uh, Israel. Hamas was against the PLO's decision to accept uh, a two-state solution. And Hamas always believed in the use of uh, terror. People say that, you know, part of the reason that Hamas uh, attacked on uh, on uh, October 7th is the fact there is no uh, two-state solution. I disagree. When I was a negotiator, Every time that we made progress, Hamas will go and blow up a bus in Israel, blow up a cafe in Israel in order to stop uh, peace process from moving forward. Hamas does not want peace. How they came to power? They came to power for two reasons. First of all, the failure of the peace process made them more popular made the idea that they said that only violence pay make it made it have more traction among the public, but also the corruption, the poor governance, the uh, lack of democracy in the Palestinian Authority made the Palestinian Authority so unappealing to the Palestinian public that when Hamas came and said, look at us, we are pious, clean people, people believed this lie. Now, of course, after Hamas took over Gaza in 2007, people who live in Gaza under Hamas know that Hamas is corrupt, is not pious, is and as dictatorial as anyone else. But at least that was the image they uh, built until uh, they took over in 2007. Israeli forces have admitted to intelligence failures on their behalf in stopping and even detecting that an attack was coming on October 7. And there were many elements to this attack. So what was the biggest surprise? If you look at what happened on October 7th, one has to look, if you wish, at it from two different uh, angles. One angle would be there is absolutely no doubt 
if you look at it, you know, big picture, that the continuation of the conflict creates a feeling of hopelessness, creates a feeling of uh, disempowerment that makes a radical message, like Hamas's message, uh, give its traction. It gives its traction. The fact that the Palestinian uh, moderates were unable to validate their message that uh, peaceful means produce results. The fact that Palestinian moderates were themselves discredited because of their corruption, uh, etc. It gave, it, it's not surprising that Hamas's radical message finds uh, resonance among uh, many of the Palestinians. Uh, that said, there was no inevitability uh, to it. You know, the choice to go and murder thousands of uh, hundreds of civilians in Israel, in their homes, is simply not an inevitable result of anything. It's a choice that Hamas undertook. So this is from the kind of big picture, if you wish. Now, if you look at it from an intelligence point of view, you know, this is a very common story that we hear in the intelligence community. It's not the fact, like the facts were not there. The facts were not were there. It's the framing that the Israeli, not only the Israeli, frankly, the regional and international intelligence community uh, looked at this uh, conflict. They looked at it, they convinced themselves that Hamas was deterred. Uh, they convinced themselves that Hamas can be managed with the carrots and sticks, uh, you know, uh, some aid to Gaza and then some military operations, limited operations, uh, if uh, things go bad, and that Hamas was deterred. I think no one... Uh, took the information that was available and managed to uh, uh, link the dots and understand that Hamas was ready for a big fight. By the way, this is no different from 9-11. If you look at 9-11, indiv individual points of data were there. It's the inability or unwillingness or the blindness in analyzing this data that produced 9-11. And I think what we saw in uh, October 7th is the same. Intelligence communities that accepted a certain narrative and interpreted the facts based on this narrative. Have we ever seen anything like this before? It's absolutely clear that nothing like this happened before. If you look at the magnitude, if you look at the strategic surprise, if you look at the fact that this is the first big attack on Israeli territory, uh, etc., this is all unprecedented. But some aspects of it were not unprecedented. You know, if you look historically, uh, the Israeli intelligence failure in October 7th is not different from the Israeli intelligence failure in uh, the October war, in the Yom Kippur war in 1973. So there are these aspects. But when it comes to Hamas uh, in particular, you know, nothing like this happened, but not for the lack of trying. Uh, Hamas has always been very clear in its terms of its ideology. I mean, they made no secret that they seek to eliminate Israel and they seek to uh, kill as many Israelis as possible. We've seen it in small scale in the past during the Second Intifada, suicide bombings, uh, etc. What was very different this time is the question of capabilities. The ability not only to uh, do this without alerting Israeli intelligence, but this is this was a very highly coordinated, reasonably sophisticated uh, attack. Many tools uh, divergent using uh, rocket fire, hitting uh, observation posts. You know, it's, this was something that was well planned. This was something that you know is not what you would expect from simply a ragtag militia, but something they would expect from something that is starting to have almost military grade military grade uh, capabilities. And in terms of the political framing as well, I think for Hamas, in some ways, they are hoping that this will follow the traditional uh, playbook, which has been uh, an escalation at the very beginning, then international pressure to reach a ceasefire. Hamas will manage to emerge uh, uh, intact or at least survive, and then will claim that the mere survival is uh, a victory. So while in some ways 
if you wish, the operational side was unprecedented. As of yet, what we are seeing in terms of the political and diplomatic framing and playbook is the traditional way that Hamas does things. Do you think Hamas is militarily equipped for a protracted war with Israel? And does it have the arsenal to fight back? Now, with a ground operation currently underway and Israel saying that they have Gaza, quote, surrounded? Urban warfare always uh, favors the uh, defender. Um, Hamas has had many years to prepare for this. Hamas has been diverting aid into building these huge uh, web of uh, tunnels. These tunnels are not only fortified, they're trapped. Uh, they're very aware of them. They have the map. The Israelis don't have the map, etc. So uh, you don't need to be particularly capable or well uh, armed to be able to uh, engage in this kind of uh, warfare. And Hamas's hope is not to defeat the Israelis, but to get to point where the human toll is so high that Israel will have to agree to a ceasefire. And again, remember, for Hamas, uh, mere survival, they will spin it as uh, uh, a victory. We all remember in the last war in which Israel uh, dealt Hamas a huge military blow for, you know, the image of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar sitting on the rubble of his office, basically saying, look, I'm still here. That's for them what a victory. So this is asymmetrical, not only in terms of the terrain and in terms of uh, of the uh, weaponry. It's asymmetrical as well in terms of how each side defines what victory is and what defeat is. Both sides want to eradicate each other, but many argue that with every mother, father, and child killed, a new Hamas is being born from the victims of this war. Do you think that Israel can actually eradicate Hamas? It really depends on how you define the question. And this is where I think precision is quite important. Because if you want to say you want to destroy Hamas, Hamas is not only an organization. Hamas is also an ideology. Hamas, as we know, is an ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood in some ways. And the Arab world has been trying to eradicate the Muslim Brotherhood since the 1920s and, uh, of course, has failed because it's very hard to eradicate ideas. Additionally, Hamas is not only Gaza. Hamas has uh, assets elsewhere. You know, the Hamas leaders uh, live very comfortably in Doha, Qatar. Hamas leaders uh, have a presence in uh, Lebanon. And it has been uh, deepening this presence in in recent uh, months. All of that said, I do not buy the argument that uh, military means are useless. I look at, for example, the defeat of Al-Qaeda. I look at the defeat of Daesh. They have been militarily defeated. Has the ideology been defeated? Of course not. But military defeat means that you uh, deny your opponent the ability to turn their ideology into action. And this is essential. Because if the next step, and this is, I think, what we have not done in the past, is to start thinking of how do you actually uh, defeat such an ideology. But you cannot do that if your opponent uh, still has uh, the military capabilities to dictate uh, not only the term of the debate, but developments on the ground. So I think it is possible to militarily uh, deny Hamas the ability to exercise large-scale terror operations, but the real challenge will become then the day after, would we be able to present an alternative vision that will make the Hamas ideology unappealing to its uh, supporters? What about a sort of global military coming together of sorts on this? Do you expect anything beyond what we're seeing right now? First of all, to the question of how it's uh, going to end. It is impossible to answer this question. We are still at the very early stages of the war. Israel seems completely uh, committed 
to engaging in a large uh, ground operation. And what we're seeing right now are simply the opening uh, stages. More than that, in previous wars, we have seen that the international support for Israel was starting to wane. On this one, we still see a solid Western, at least, support for Israel. And it's not only the Americans. If you look at Europe, for example, many European countries, the key European countries, continue to support uh, Israel's right to engage in its military operations. And that is because, again, of the heinous nature of the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. It touched so many Europeans in ways that they felt at home. I was talking to a French uh, journalist uh, a few days ago, and she was telling me how this reminded her of the Charlie Hebdo attacks and some of the attacks that happened in, is in France itself. So there is still that kind of support. All of this to say that, unfortunately, and I'm really sad to say this, we are at the st early stages. Of course, these things are unpredictable. We all remember the uh, Lebanon wars, whether in the 90s or in 2006, where the attack on Kana uh, basically shifted the trajectory of the war. It is very impossible uh, to see uh, what it is. From within the kind of international community, particularly in terms of the Arab worlds, here I'm going to frankly plagiarize what the great columnist Abdurrahman al-Rashid said recently in an article in Sharq al-Awsat, where he said, you know, when Hamas took this decision, it did not consult with Arab countries. When Hamas took this decision, it did not take into account the interest of Arab countries. More than that, when Hamas took this decision, it knew that it will impact the strategic interests of Arab countries. And therefore, Hamas should not expect that the Arab countries will jeopardize and sacrifice their own national interests because of an organization that has acted in ways that are contrary to the interests of those Arab states. The scale and the depth of what is happening every day in Gaza is unfathomable, even to those living it. People we've spoken to have said they are actively suppressing the scenes they've been witnessing. The lost limbs, the lost lives, and the hope being lost on this sinking ship where everyone is just doing the best they can to fulfill their role as doctor, mother, or digger, looking for someone still alive, if you can even call that living. That's it for today, even if it's just a fraction of what is happening on the ground, but we'll continue to bring you the latest. For more information on what's happening in Israel and Gaza, please subscribe to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines, where we explain and analyze the current conflict. You can also follow our coverage at thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Dua Farid, Phil Green, and Arthur Edison, and I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. <laughs>